baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We hear a lot about the liberal and conservative media echo chambers, and it's true. If you spend a day soaking up the news in liberal land, you're going to have a very different view of the world than after a day spent in conservativeville. But if you watch closely, you'll notice it's not just a difference in substance between left and right. It's a difference in style, too. It has been a very good day, two days for the president, and actually great days for America. A horrible day if you're part of the corrupt deep state, you're one of their operatives. What a possible Trump impeachment might look like. That's actually a pretty good question. What would a Trump impeachment look like? I mean, ironically, I imagine at least part of it would involve thousands of Muslims celebrating in New Jersey. You hear there, it's not just the arguments the hosts are making that are different. It's how those arguments are made, and that difference might be very telling. In fact, today's guest says that if we want to understand the nation's stark political divide, a good place to start would be to take a long, hard look at the divide between some of the most popular forms of liberal and conservative media here in 2019. I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today in the program, we're going to be speaking with Dana Young. She's a professor of communication at the University of Delaware. Her forthcoming book is Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And uh, she joins us now. Professor Young, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Let's get to the heart of the matter because I set this up in maybe a slightly misleading way. I was talking about conservative and liberal media writ large. But the focus of your book is really on particular kinds of conservative and liberal media. The The title is Irony and Outrage. So you're focusing on this very specific ironic form of liberal media. And on the other hand, of a very specific kind of uh, bombastic, didactic version of uh, conservative media uh, do a, a better job than I just did of describing the, the specific kinds of media you're talking about. What are we focusing on here? Well, I love the word bombastic to describe outrage, and I <laughs> and I wish I could go back in and put that as a wonderful adjective to describe it. Um, so let me start with outrage, since, since you used that word and now I'm excited. Um, that concept of outrage, that is referring to a specific kind of genre of media. And that term comes from the work of a sociologist and political science scientist at Tufts University, Jeff Berry and Sarah Soberai, who several years back published a book called The Outrage Industry, where they defined a genre that they refer to as outrage. And that genre is a genre of um, radio and television programming that is opinion based, that has a solo host who drives the perspective of the show. It is very much didactic. It is emotion-based. It is identifying threats and things that we should be concerned about in the, in the environment, um, meaning usually people and organizations and institutions and activists that may be threats. Um, and it also often uses slippery slope language and hyperbole to get people really emotionally invested and outraged about whatever it is that the host is talking about. So perhaps the king of the outrage genre would be a Rush Limbaugh, where, you know, 
he has really crystallized what that genre of outrage is, particularly on the right. So when we're thinking about outrage, it has these characteristics, okay? Now, Barry and Sober, I do say there is outrage on both sides. Rachel Maddow could be considered outrage, right? You have Chris Hayes, Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC could be considered outrage. However, what's fascinating to me is that when these authors did a content analysis of the kinds of elements of the content that would really signify that genre, content elements like hyperbole, name-calling, you know, threat identification, they found that conservative outrage programming is significantly more outrageous than liberal outrage programming. That, to me, is interesting. Okay, so let me just kind of bookmark that for a second. On the other side, the other genre that I'm referring to is ironic satire. That is programming that is designed to be humorous and elicit laughter that makes some kind of an argument aimed at a target. It issues some kind of a judgment, but it also does so by saying the opposite of what it means. So when you when you think about irony, you might want to think about something like Uh, Stephen Colbert's character that he played for years on The Colbert Report, where he performed in character, ironically, as a conservative pundit. But we knew that the things that he was articulating were the opposite of what he actually meant. So irony is one subset of satire. I think irony best illustrates the kind of rhetorical device that I argue is a more natural pairing with a liberal psychology, which I'll get to. And outrage, on the other hand, is a kind of genre that uses rhetorical devices that are more natural pairing for a conservative psychology. And here might be a good place to dwell on what is motivating some of this research. Uh, you, You bring this up early on in your book, the question of why is there no wildly popular conservative irony-based media? And on the other hand, why is there no wildly popular uh, outrage-based liberal media? Why isn't that there is some liberal talk radio that can mirror what we see on the right? Uh, So tell us a little bit about what you found in that regard and and why that's an interesting question to you. Great. So when I started looking at the effects of political humor on attitudes and behaviors, I was followed around by this question that plagued my work, which was, why can't we find many successful examples of conservative political satire and conservative ironic satire in particular? You know, conservatives do often use slippery slope language and hyperbole, which can be funny to the audience, right? Rush Limbaugh, many people who listen to Limbaugh do find him funny, but he's not using irony. Right. He's often heightening what he's saying in ways that are kind of ridiculous but and preposterous, but in ways that are funny. But he's not doing it in this inverted way. So this question got me really puzzled for a while. And then also realizing at the same time, why is it that liberal talk radio is not as successful a thing or is not a thing at all? I mean, Air America was an experiment in liberal outrage radio, but that experiment, for many reasons, failed. You know, so it seemed to me that there's something perhaps inherent in 
the psychologies of not only the people who are consuming these things, but the people who are creating these things that might make them more likely to express themselves politically in one way over another. That introduced me to the vast literature from the world of political psychology, which finds that as uncomfortable as it may be to acknowledge, liberals and conservatives are not just different in how we or on how we think about gun control or abortion or gay marriage or the environment. We actually overall, on average, have very different sort of psychological underpinnings that guide how we orient to the world and how we choose to experience the world. If you could, let's let's dwell on this uh, political psychology question for just a second before we go any further, because I think that it can be very easy in talking about the political psychology of any group to come off sounding judgy, you know, to put it kind of crassly, to sound like we're saying you have this uh, psychology and therefore that's good or bad or neutral or something like that. And is is there a way of processing this kind of information without judging people as good, bad or ugly? That is a great question. My hope is the answer is yes, because I will be honest, when I came to these questions, I'm a social psychologist, and as patterns would suggest, I tend to be more liberal, especially on sort of social and cultural issues. And so when I came to these questions, especially because I came to these questions trying to understand why there are so few conservatives producing ironic satire, my natural inclination was to say, what are conservatives lacking, right, that is making them not do this? As I began to study it, I started to understand that you can actually look at both of these orientations to the world as having really essential roles that have to be played in a functioning society to exist. And my hope is perhaps by by becoming familiar with some of these truths, perhaps those on the left can become more appreciative of the, the inclinations of those on the right and vice versa. Because the reality is that, yes, anything anything taken to extremes is problematic. But the reality is we do need people who have certain orientations to the world that perhaps appear upon first glance to be more rigid or more threat-oriented or more, quote-unquote, fearful. But without those individuals to mind the store and do the hard work and perhaps be police officers or in the military or, you know, EMTs, then where are we? Where are we left? So I say that as kind of a, a, a welcome mat <laughs> that I'm putting out before this conversation really starts. Um, mm. So let me just say that the, the psychological traits that I am most interested in that have been most useful and predictive empirically and statistically in looking at these patterns are on the one hand what is called a tolerance for ambiguity. And a tolerance for ambiguity has often been referred to as like openness. Um, But that has a really positive valence, right? And the other side of that trait is a need for closure. So what do these things mean? A tolerance for ambiguity means that you are very comfortable in uncertain situations. It means that you are... And that would be be a trait that's more associated with the left? Correct. That is something that is significantly related to especially social and cultural liberalism. Um, We're not so much talking about fiscal liberalism and conservatism because that's kind of a different animal. We're talking about social and cultural 
um, liberalism and conservatism. So things related to um, gay marriage and abortion and immigration and these kinds of issues. Um, So this tolerance for ambiguity, this comfort with uncertainty is something that is higher among liberals than conservatives. And this has to do with both how much order we feel like we need in our lives. Liberals don't feel like they need as much structure or rigidity or predictability in their daily lives. And the the opposite of this need for closure is people who tend to come to reliable, efficient decisions very quickly. Perhaps they are less comfortable with ambiguity. They're less comfortable with people whose meaning, whose whose statements have more than one meaning. Like they kind of want to know, like, what are you saying? Black and white. Um, But these are also these high need for closure conservative individuals. Again, all on average, these are probabilities. This isn't like if you are conservative, then you are necessarily this way. These are about, you know, trends. These conservatives with high need for closure are also really good at reliable heuristic judgments, meaning heuristic meaning um, emotion-based reactions so they can respond quickly. And they do have a higher orientation to threats in their environment. They are more cognizant of and thinking more frequently about mortality and death. Now, that could imply that perhaps they're a downer, but guess what? We also find that on average conservatives, not liberals, are on average happier. So, you know, you you got to take each of these findings and really be self-critical about the the conclusions that you are prone to draw based on your own biases. The other trait, in addition to this tolerance for ambiguity, the other trait that I find really fascinating here is what is called need for cognition. That is, how much do you enjoy thinking? How much do you enjoy coming up with solutions to large problems? This, again, is a trait that sounds like, oh, you're talking about smart people versus stupid people. And I would like to caution listeners, this is not about smart versus stupid. This is not about how much information you have versus people who don't have information. This is simply about how much do you enjoy chewing on information, you know, for the, for the sake of chewing on information. There are situations in which, yes, that's a great thing. There are other situations in which that high need for cognition could cause you to perhaps be slower in how you respond to a situation that really needs a quick response, right? So these are the two traits that are related to political ideology. And they're also these traits that are very much related to the kinds of people who consume and watch ironic satire on the one hand and these outrage-oriented programs on the other. And that high need for cognition, again, that's associated with people on the left end of the spectrum. Correct. All right. Well, let's uh, let's concrete this out a little bit in just a second. But one last time, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We are once again speaking with University of Delaware communication professor Dana Young about her forthcoming book, Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And to make this all a little bit more concrete, I actually prepared a couple of clips uh, that perhaps illustrate some of the points that you're making. And as we play through these clips, I want our listeners to just think through what sorts of adjectives you would associate with the uh, the presentation and the affect and how these 
arguments are being put together right here. So first, I'm going to play a clip of liberal commentator John Oliver poking fun at President Trump. And also generally whine about how mean people were being to him. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. Wait, no politician has been treated worse. Abraham Lincoln was shot by an actor. All right, so that is John Oliver, definitely more on the left end of the spectrum. Now let's compare this to Fox News host Sean Hannity. This is a clip of Sean Hannity blasting the opponents of President Trump following Robert Mueller's testimony in front of Congress recently. After two years of claiming the president was a Russian operative working with and for Vladimir Putin, who stole the election, and that's what you get. The so-called journalists and newsrooms all around America, without exception, had any courage or decency at all, they would apologize to you, we, the American people, for their lying, their hoax, and their conspiracy theories. But they won't. It's clear. They hate Think about this. All right. So hopefully that gives listeners a little bit more of a sense of the contrast that we're talking about here. Definitely, you can see different styles, different approaches, different ways of trying to get their message across. Now let's get back to the psychology that we were talking about. Uh, Professor Young, what is it about the psychology uh, traits that you're talking about that would produce the John Oliver clip that we heard right there versus the Sean Hannity clip that we heard right there. Those were great examples. The uh, the John Oliver clip, there's a couple things that are going on here. When you think about how satire is produced and how um, especially ironic satire is produced, there's usually a leap that you have to make as the audience member to come to some conclusion about what it really means. When in, in that clip, Oliver is a bit more explicit because he says, wait, you feel like you've, you've been treated more unfairly than anyone, any president in history. Abraham Lincoln was shot. The, the translation, right, the thing that we then need to bring to bear on that to make sense of it is he is dealing with perhaps a hostile press, he being Trump. But there there has not been an assassination attempt and certainly not a successful one. So therefore, what he is saying is clearly exaggerated. So the Hannity clip is interesting as well because – you know, say what you will about Sean Hannity. He does not mince words. You don't come away from Hannity thinking, I wonder what he really meant. <laughs> right? Like, I, I, wonder what, I wonder what he was really trying to get at. You have, you have no doubt, not only about what the argument is that he's making, but also who's to blame for whatever the thing is he's upset about. You know what's mm. bad and whose fault it is. Um, so when we think about these underlying psychologies, you can understand how something that is like a Sean Hannity, where it's didactic and clear and emotion-based, if you're someone who orients to the world needing closure, wanting to understand and monitor what the threats are in the environment, that is going to speak to you. That is a very natural pairing for you to be able to get exactly what it is that you psychologically need from that content. The other thing that I think is interesting to note is that with a thing like John Oliver, not only do you need to do a little more cognitive work to get it and make sense of it, there's also the fact that satirists present their political expression as play. I argue that that in and of itself illustrates this kind of ambiguity and hybridity that perhaps would be less comfortable for conservatives to really take seriously. 
right? Like here he is and he's saying, I'm just making jokes. I'm just having fun. You know, he's sort of an investigative journalist, kind of. He has investigative journalists on his staff that help write for him, but he makes jokes about it. So that inherent hybridity where he's playful but offering political information, that in and of itself might be less palatable for someone who needs things to be more black and white, who needs to know, is this political? Should I take this seriously? Is this important enough to inform my worldview or not? Whereas liberals might be more comfortable engaging with that kind of a content and allowing that content to inform what they think and what they know and what they think is important. And so let's get to the punchline of all of this, so to speak, getting back to the original question of how are these different forms impacting the way that our democracy is working, the way that our American political brain is processing all of this information What does it mean for our country that not only are the left and the right coming to different conclusions and arguing different arguments, what does it mean that the the fundamental way that they're putting together this information and these arguments is so very different? How how is this impacting uh, our, our, our civic discourse? One of my concerns is that because we create and consume such different content that we may come to discredit the content of the other side because we see it as illegitimate, but not understanding that that content is playing a role in this way for these audience members and for these people who engage in it. Um, There's also the fact that while both of these genres do actually shape attitudes and opinions and knowledge, I will say very clearly that they are not equal in terms of their capacity to mobilize. That is because outrage, which is steeped in emotion and an orientation towards threat, outrage is tailor-made for audience mobilization in a way that your satire is not. Satire is great at getting people to think about things, to ruminate on things, to reconsider things. It's not necessarily as good at putting a fire under people's rear ends to get them to engage in action now. So I think that to me is a really sort of fascinating disconnect. And I do think that it should be noted that when we're looking at these outrage hosts on the right and we're looking at a Hannity and we're looking at a, you know, um, Judge Jeanine Pirro and we're looking at Laura Ingram these hosts, it should not be surprising that these hosts in many Contexts are explicitly advocating for people to engage in certain political acts, like Hannity actively campaigning for Donald Trump, Hannity actively campaigning the night before the midterm elections in 2018 at a rally with Trump, right? Limbaugh actively electioneering. So you don't see that same level of intimate attempts at mobilization from our satirists on the left that you do on the right. And I think that that is because of that sort of emotion threat based natural pairing that works very well in a way that we should all be mindful of and should be especially to the extent that Hannity tries to call himself a journalist, which sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. But I think that we should be aware of the fact that you know, that's an interesting line to navigate. And should he be engaging in those kinds of behaviors? Now, another interesting 
new trend that you point out in your work as well. And I, I, I think that anybody who watches late night comedy closely can pick up on this is the fact that there does seem to be a little bit more of an outrage edge to a lot of the jokes that are being made in late night liberal comedy. You point to the example of Samantha B and uh, what she had to say about Ivanka Trump uh, using a rather derogatory term there. Uh, you could point to the transition that Stephen Colbert has made over his career from very, you never knew exactly where he was coming from and always had a hefty dose of irony in everything that he said to now pretty much just coming straight out and saying, very nasty things about President Trump. However you feel about President, some of the, the things that Stephen Colbert has to say about him are, you know, objectively pretty nasty. So what what what's behind this change in tone that we're hearing from uh, the left hosts? I think what might be going on here is that while liberals are less cognizant of threats in their environment in general, and while liberals are generally more tolerant of ambiguity and uncertainty, it's not like they have an infinite tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty. And it's not as though they have zero concern about threats in their environment. And I think especially after eight years of a, an Obama administration, for many very liberal comedians, perhaps it is the case that they are experiencing an increase in the sort of prominence of what they perceive as threats in their environment. Right. Threats to things like, you know, environmental policy, social policy, relations between the races, um, issues related to immigration and borders and, you know, nationalism. All of these things that I think are quite central to a progressive liberal ideology. And part of me wonders if perhaps this is actually activating a threat in such a way that it becomes harder for them to stay in that state of play. It becomes harder for them to just articulate their arguments through innuendo and through these sort of semantic gaps and through irony. And perhaps in the face of threat, even those liberals who tend to be less oriented towards threat, it's like you can't ignore the threat. When we see the, that statement from Samantha B about about Ivanka Trump, what I got from Samantha B and what I continue to get from Samantha B is the sense that she is really angry and upset. And when you are angry and upset, I think it is harder to just be playful and funny and lighthearted. I think we see the same thing when you look at the clips of Jimmy Kimmel talking about his concerns about repealing the Affordable Care Act. He was speaking from the heart about the heart surgery that his son had gone through and the need for children in that same situation to be able to have access to medical care that for some is made possible through the ACA. Kimmel dropped humor altogether. And in some ways, I think that that illustrates the same kind of mechanism that maybe for conservatives is sort of more prominent like on a daily basis just that guiding how they interact with the worlds around them whereas for liberals perhaps this is something that is peaking in this current political environment very interesting well we're running up uh, running out of time uh, but uh, I, I do want to pick up for our last point on a point that you made in uh, your previous answer 
the notion that it may be worth our time to acquaint ourselves with forms of media that are outside of our own political divide and to try to find the value there. I may be revealing a little bit too much of uh, my own personal media habits right here for our audience, but I, I do actually genuinely enjoy consuming both liberal and conservative media. And sometimes it's hard for me to argue to my friends that are on this or that side of the political divide that there really is something interesting to be learned from uh, both sides in, in a lot of different ways. So if maybe you could expand on that a little bit, perhaps do a better job of arguing to my friends than I've done in the past. Why is it worth our time to really acquaint ourselves and try to find the value in all the different kinds of media and argumentation that are out there? To, you know, at the risk of sounding glib, I, I do feel like when you get far enough out on the left, or far enough out on the right, you kind of come around and you look the same. And meaning, you know, there are many on the far left who, it seems, just from the their style and the arguments that they make, they seem pretty high in need for closure. They seem pretty low in need for cognition in terms of how they're making the arguments that they're making. And, and you know, when I hear folks on the left say there's no way that I'm going to consume anything from the other side, I actually think quite ironically that displays a lack of tolerance for ambiguity that maybe they maybe you want to entertain some of the arguments that are coming from the other side so that you yourself do not, you know, I, I joke with my students. I'm like, my job here as your professor is to bring you in from the fringes. Like, I don't need you drifting out into the abyss of the far left or far right, because that could make democratic health go into the toilet. So let's just bring it in. And in order to do that, you have to, in good faith, engage with the ideas of the other side. And both sides have crackpots. And yes, I am engaging in both sidism, which I know the left can't stand. But it is the reality. Both sides have crackpots. But both sides have thoughtful, thinking, well-intentioned, well-meaning individuals who simply have different ways that they seek to solve the problems of the world. And I think we would be well-advised to allow those arguments to inform our worldview. And to those on the left who say, there's no way I want to do that, I would say, think about some of the values that guide you in other aspects of your life, right? Like things like tolerance, and ambiguity and openness and perhaps take those things and try to extend them into how you engage in the political world. Right. And even extend that into how accepting you are of affects that may be somewhat displeasurable to you. Yes. A great point. All right. Well, we did get a lot of great points in there. It was a very interesting conversation, and we uh, thank you for that. Uh, one last time, we have been speaking today with University of Delaware communication professor Dana Young. Her forthcoming book is Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And I got to say, we barely cracked the surface on this thing. So uh, folks out there, you're going to want to give this thing a read. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Uh, and uh, we want to thank our guest today. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Danny Young. Thank you so much for having me. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth, the production of KCBS Radio in San Francisco. I want to give a special thanks today to the good people over at Radio.com Station, KYW News Radio in Philadelphia, for making this show possible today. You guys know what you did. That is going to do it for the program today, though, for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.